Welcome to the Cloudonics CX Verse podcast. In this series, we are exploring everything related to customer experience. Hi, everyone. It's Eric here from Cloudonics with the latest edition of the CX Verse. Today, I'm joined with Cameron, who will talk about the art of being a second in command, the chief operating officer. So, Cameron, Please tell us about yourself and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Eric. Thanks very much. Appreciate you having me. Wow. Where do I, where do I kind of start on this one? So this is my sixth book, The Second in Command. Um, my first book I wrote 12 years ago, it was called Double Double. And it was all around how to double the revenue and profitability of companies in three years or less. And it was all based on my experience of having built a few different organizations by the time I was 42. I built $300 million companies by the time I was 42 years old, always in that second in command kind of a role as well. Um, Most notably, I was the the chief operating officer for a brand called 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which I took from 14 employees to 3,100 employees in six years, from 2 million to 106 million. And we did that without giving up any any equity. Uh, we, We had no debt. Uh, we also ranked as the number two company in all of Canada to work for, but we were operating in four countries and 330 cities. So it was understanding how to actually you know, position myself and my expertise inside of an organization to help them scale. And then six years ago, I started an organization called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. You know, we've got hundreds of groups out there for entrepreneurs. And then we've got lots of communities and groups for CFOs and engineers and marketers, but there was never a place just for that second in command, whether it was a president, VP operations, director of ops, or a COO. So we created a community for them. And that's really what the impetus for the book came from. Great. So the outlook for customer experience is very different when you're sitting in the COO seat. The kinds Mm. of things that you worry about you're not the sales CPU worries about the sales process. You're not customer care. You're not IT. So how do you see the best way to approach this uh, going forward in the second in command spot? Well, it's interesting. I guess Thomas Edison said that vision without execution is hallucination. And I think the COO or that second in command is the person that can really tie all the ideas and the vision together. They're also really good at getting all the disparate department areas to actually line up and get consensus, to have a really good debate, to really kind of fight for the core values, to fight for the goals of the organization, to fight for the vivid vision of the organization, but also to care about their second kind of areas that they run as well. One of my core mindsets inside of an organization has always been that the number one team for any of the C-level, whether you're a head of finance or head of sales or head of customer, head of people, whatever, your number one team is the leadership team. Your second most important team is the functional area that you lead. So really your customer group, you know, if you're the head of finance is probably finance, but really your customer group is the entire company, right? We need to be thinking. And that's really what the COO's job is, is to make sure that all of the leaders are not just thinking about their functional area, but they're thinking about the end user customer, the internal stakeholders, the shareholders, the vision, the core values, the culture, and really kind of lining people up with that. Definitely. The making the vision real. I mean, the CEO's job is to set the vision, set the policy, but uh, and that's worth the board. But yes, the COO is the one who has to kind of pull that together and see if it becomes real. 
Yeah, and I've talked in the in the entrepreneurial space, if you're kind of, let's say that we're talking about the 1 million to 50 million size companies, the, the COO is often the brakes to the entrepreneur's gas. Um, my sister has been an entrepreneur for 25 years, and she said her COO is the leash to her dragon, right? She's kind of the wild, crazy dragon. He's like always pulling back on the leash a little bit. I think as companies scale, as you get past the $50 million mark, as you build out your first true leadership team of actual seasoned executives that are really strong at running functional areas that can run, you know, cross matrix decision making and be more strategic, they tend to actually think differently about how to run the organization. They understand that their first team is that leadership team, but the the smaller organizations differ there. And then also as the company scales and gets into that range, the CEO becomes less entrepreneurial and they become more of a CEO of a professionally managed team. They understand that they can't come in with their crazy idea and start everything tomorrow. They understand that it has to go into the workflow and the project charts. I don't know. There's an awful lot of press about uh, billion dollar companies with CEOs that seem to have not caught that message, but. Well, yeah, th those ones are the exceptions. Those ones are different. One and one that you're mentioning, I've known him since January of 1995. I was a reference for Elon Musk in his very first round of funding for Zip2 in January of 95. He's he's definitely one of the anomalies of the humans who are uh, he's more computer than human anyway. Well, I was actually thinking Zuckerberg and some of the things that he's kind of sidetracked Facebook into. Oh, has he ever? Yeah, it's the same kind of story. They're still in the um, I'm a dreaming big not I'm trying to make it work phase. Yeah, I think the mental state. It feels like the acid has really kicked in with Zuckerberg. I'm not sure where the metaverse is going, but maybe I'm just getting old. I'm not sure that that one's going to play out as strong as they think. I hope I hope that you're wrong since I'm very much involved with that, but that's a story for another. Podcast. Okay. So you said that you'd had some experience with internal, external, partner kind of uh, case studies. Yeah. What have you seen? I was just going to touch on that. It's interesting. If we roll back the camera to my first week at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. So I rolled into this company. I was the CEO's best friend. We'd already known each other for four years. And I was going to come into the company and help him scale up the organization. And he, he had me go out in the trucks and drive around in the trucks and haul junk. So I would understand this process of going into people's homes and businesses and hauling junk away. And I came home at the end of my lunch hour of the first day. So I'd been out in the truck for a total of four hours. And I started getting changed out of my junk removal clothes, you know, the uniform into my street clothes. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm done. He said, you can't be done. I've spent years in the trucks. There's no way you can understand the business after four hours. And I said, I understand the business. It has nothing to do with junk removal. It's everything to do with customer engagement. Our entire business is how well we can connect with the customer, engage with the customer, deliver on the customer's expectations, share the stories and the Kool-Aid with the customer so they can share our messaging. It's all about customer engagement. It has nothing to do with putting stuff in a truck and taking it to a dump. And he connected something there when I said that and realized that that really was the big shift, was how do we stay so connected with the customer's needs and how do we get the customers so connected with our vision with our culture, with where we're taking the organization. So we really started to build something that was a little bit more than a business and a little bit less than a religion. We tried to get into the zone of the cult and how did we kind of stir that Kool-Aid and get the customer involved with that? So that was my first kind of understanding of the customer engagement part of the journey. And then secondly, we had franchise partners. 
So, you know, when I started in the company, we had 12 franchisees. When I left six and a half years later, we had 330 franchisees in four countries. The, the franchise partners were a quasi customer of ours as well. We had to deliver on our promises to them. We had to deliver on the sales and marketing of how great this franchise opportunity was going to be for them. We had to make sure that we met their needs and that we cared about them and we thought about them and thought about their families, thought about their markets, because the more successful they would be, the happier they would be, the more they would spread the stories and, and the faster we'd sell franchises, et cetera. But we also thought of them also as our partners. So we intentionally called them our franchise partners, not franchisees. And often they would come to us and say, hey, we're, your, we're our customer. And we went, no, you're a, you're a form of a customer, but our real customer is the shared Mr. Smith or Mrs. Jones. That's our real shared customer together. So when they understood that, that we would treat them like a customer and a partner at the same time, I think it built an even stronger relationship between us. And then thirdly, we had you know, our employees. Um, you know, for, for many of our employees, and we understood this back in the day, that we had to get them engaged in this cult in, and, and in this culture and where we were taking the organization in our core purpose, our BHAG, our core values. We had to get them excited about the vivid vision of where we were taking the organization. But we also had to really care about them as humans. And the more that we cared about our employees' personal lives, their personal dreams, their fears, their insecurities, their problems at home, if we cared about them more than anyone else, they would care about the company more than any employee had cared about companies. So we understood the customer in all three of those different areas. And each one required a slightly different kind of experience. Well, it required a different experience. And then I tried to teach everyone in the company to visualize the org chart upside down. So what I did was I visualized the org chart like an upside down pyramid with the CEO at the bottom supporting the VPs who are supporting the managers and employees who are supporting the customers, right? Like an inverted pyramid. And at the, the top, everyone could see the vivid vision of where we were going. And we kept the company aligned inside of our core purpose and our core values. And by showing up as that kind of servant leader, where our job as leaders was to grow people's skills and grow their confidence, to really care about them, that really unlocked something pretty special inside the organization. That's definitely not the typical corporate culture. I mean, many companies will draw the diagram that way. Very few people will actually uh, live it. And they can talk the talk, but they don't live it properly. Yeah. It falls down. So I think it was it was one of my very first mentors when I was involved in a company called College Pro Painters and Greg Clark, who was the founder of College Pro, which went on to become the world's largest residential house painting company. I ended up on the very senior leadership team. But Greg said that a leader's job is to grow people. And I remember that, that if my job is to grow people, it's not to hold them accountable. It's to hire accountable people and teach them to be more self-accountable. My job isn't to manage people. It's to teach them to manage their priorities and manage their time. My job isn't to, you know, get frustrated with people. It's to learn how to delegate better and learn how to coach and use situational leadership. So it was just a very flipped mindset to my job is to grow people and get results through people. And the best way to do that is to kind of stir that Kool-Aid. I became very fascinated with cults back in the day probably because I was at the age when, you know, on the cover of Time magazine was the Jonestown Guyana scare with the purple Kool-Aid. And I was in grade eight and I saw that at a very formative age. 
I was very intrigued as to why people would get involved with this. And then it went through, you know, the Moonies and the Hare Krishnas and the, you know, Waco, Texas. And there was all these like cults that I started to see and observe. And I realized that there was something interesting and intriguing in that cult. If you understood the customer there, if you understood the people who were getting involved, then how could you, without going too far, how could you leverage the good of, of or the ideals with, you know, some of those groups were doing like fraternities or churches, et cetera. Makes sense. Unfortunately, again, a lot of people took it the wrong way. Yeah. And I grew up with the Kool-Aid running through the wall kind of story, which is a, a very different vision than drinking the, the official Kool-Aid concept. Sure. Well, and, you know, some companies take culture too far. Some companies abuse the employees in the you know, they don't care about their personal lives. They don't care about their families. It's all about the company. And I think that is, you, you don't get the best out of people when you don't care about them. Agreed. And it, it's both their personal lives and to some degree, which is a more common topic when I'm talking to people about this, the customer is, how do you help support them in their business life? Okay. So in the, taking the 1-800-JUNK story, making sure they have working vehicles, making sure they have maps, making sure they have all of the tools they need to make that possible is pretty much where people kind of stop with the process. Yeah, and we would, it's interesting. We had some franchise partners in the very early day that I sat down with them and I said, how much money would you like to make next year? How much profit would you like to make? And they'd give me some number. And I said, do you have any idea how much revenue you need to, to do to generate that much profit? And they said, no. I said, do you want me to work through it with you? And they said, sure. So we'd work through this little simple budget and then I'd show them and then they'd be like, oh, that's interesting. If I do X, I'll yield Y. And then I said, do you want us to coach you and help you get to that revenue number so you make that much profit? And they said, sure. So all of a sudden we were coaching them to hit these profit numbers and then I would help them raise their profit goals. Mm -hmm. Well, by doing that, it meant they had to do more revenue, which meant we got more royalties but because I was focusing on their bottom line, they worked really, really hard and they hit the numbers. And that's really where our growth came from. But if I was only focused on corporate growth, corporate revenue, corporate profits, it could have been at the expense of our franchise partners. Well, what we ended up doing was going from 2 million to 106 million because I focused on their needs and on their goals and then gave them the tools to be able to do that. And I'm presuming part of that, again, is making sure that their teams had the tools to do what they needed. And it just trickled all the way down to the people who ring the doorbell saying, OK, we're here for a pickup. And also is it focusing on our teams as well. I was I was pretty um, focused around growing people. I used to visualize myself walking around with a watering can and my job was to water people. <laughs> so, you know, if I thought I, I kept looking at the core skills, I even launched a course two years ago, an online course for people called Invest in Your Leaders. And it's the 12 core leadership skills that I always use to grow people. And the more that I would grow them in these 12 skills, the more they would scale up the company. And none of those skills were the technical, normal skills that a business would teach. It was stuff like situational leadership, coaching, delegation, interviewing, running effective meetings, conflict management, project management, you know, all the core executive functioning skills that we assume people know how to do but no one's ever really been trained in these things. So the more that I, again, cared about them, and I showed them that by caring about their skills, they would excel in their career, they'd get promotions, they could take on more responsibility, they could get paid more, they all showed up wanting to learn. 
And then all of a sudden the company got bigger and faster because we had these people that were hungry and wanted to learn and had more skills. And instead of me telling them what to do and pushing them, I kind of flipped it to show them why they would want to grow and then how that would help them. And then that ended up yielding happier franchisees, happier employees, happier customers. All those things they don't teach you in your standard MBA program. Yeah. My real world MBA was running the house painting company. When I was 20 years old, I had 12 full-time employees in my business. And it was really learning from being inside that franchise system at a very young age. At an age when I was so scared of failing that I did whatever I was told to. That can be very scary depending on the culture of the company. Okay. So it, looking at what's possible as a COO, what are the things that you need to have in place with yourself for customer experience to be focused on it, to drive it in these three different verticals, if you would. Yeah. And let me just touch on something really, let me touch on something before we go into that as well, which is like, why would a company have a CEO, a COO, right? Why does an entrepreneurial organization or a small, medium-sized company, what, what are they going to get from that second in command? And the first thing they're really going to get is it's going to free up the time of the CEO to be more strategic, to think about culture, to think about the employees, to think about the customer, to think about the board, to, to really kind of work on the business instead of working in the business. And often the entrepreneurial leader, the entrepreneurial CEO is managing people. They're running the one-on-one -on -one meetings maybe once every week or two, but they don't have time to grow people. And if they can bring in that second in command to run the business or to grow people, it can free up. It's almost like a, a partner when you can kind of join hands and, and off you go. So I guess your, your question is, what does the COO need to do to be able to focus on those core areas or think about? But what skills, what steps, yeah. where would you recommend somebody start? Obviously, in this short podcast, we're not going to be able to cover even a tenth of what's in your book or in your course, sure. but there's a starting point. Where do we start to get that concept going? The, fir the first is really an understanding of the core you know, Simon Sinek talks about the whole start with why in his golden circle. Simon was on our board of advisors five years before he wrote that book and did that TED talk. And we really understood that the very kind of core, the essence of the starting with why. Well, a COO needs to understand the core of the organization, really understand the core values, really understand the core purpose, really understand the BHAG, really understand the genesis of the company and how it got to where it's going and make sure that all people in the organization understand that core DNA. So that's a starting point is making sure they understand that. Secondly, they truly need to understand the vision of the CEO, right? They need to be so clear on the vision of the CEO and make sure that they have systems in place for the CEO to be very clear on their plans to execute and make that vision come true, right? Almost like a homeowner signs off on the blueprints to build a home and the contractor signs off on the vision from the homeowner so they can create blueprints to make the vision happen. So they need that system. And then thirdly, they really need to have the people skills. They need to be very, very solid at situational leadership, at building collaboration and consensus, at helping foster good debate inside of the organization. Um, there was a book that came out years ago called Traction by Gina Wickman, and he talked about the integrator, the second command being the tiebreaker. And I vehemently disagree with that idea. If you're a small company with 10 people, sure, you need a COO to be a tiebreaker. But when your organization gets 50, 100, 500 employees, you need the COO to get the leadership team 
to have really good debate, to look at the numbers, to think about different opportunities, to really kind of kind of throw it all out there and then to get consensus. So the COO needs to be able to get people to have debate, to get people to build. It's kind of the forming, storming, norming, performing model. They have to be really good at taking teams through that model. And that's a skill set that COOs need to come in with. And then lastly is just the ability to, to keep the organization prioritized, right? To keep them working on the critical few things versus the important many. Uh, at the end of the day, a company only has three inputs. We have our people, we have time, like days, weeks, and months ahead of us, and we have money. And the COO's job is to make sure we get the highest return on those three assets. So it's by keeping the organization focused, working on those critical few things, building consensus, growing people. And then as long as they're driving towards the strategy, kind of following the core purpose, core values, and the BHAG, everything scales. Makes sense. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot there to unpack clearly, but that's, that's the framework that I see them in. Makes sense. I've been personally trying to do that. And it's not so much as the many as the, this is more fun. And when the company is small, having one or two people go up, well, I have two things and this is the more fun or the cooler or the that that's you, you've got to be able to rein them in. Yeah, we have to save we have to save the entrepreneurial CEOs from themselves, right? Often their their biggest strength is the fact that they see everything and they want to do everything, but that's also their biggest weakness at the same time. So we have to allow them to be entrepreneurial. We have to allow them to fuel their entrepreneurial ADD, and then we have to take all their random ideas and bring them in and keep them in a safe place, but not start them all right away. And then we need to help them organize their ideas and show them we have them, they're safe, they're organized, and then we'll start working them in the right order. Kind of like building a home. You know, often the, the entrepreneurial CEO wants to install the cabinets and put in the wolf stove and the sub-zero fridge, but we need to get them to remember we have to pour the foundation and then we have to put in the walls and then we got to put in the electrical and the plumbing and all they want is that wolf stove and they're like, we're gonna get to the sub-zero fridge, but let us build the walls first, right? My my concern is that it's not always the CEO that you're doing that to. It's not. And the CTO and the other tech team run into the same problem. Oh, I really want that fridge. It's going to be really cool to install and play with. Never mind the floor. That's boring. You know, the other thing that happens, because you're right on that, the other thing that happens is companies have gotten in many ways, I think in the last 20 years, very sloppy and lazy at saying no. And we've tried to build these collaborative workplaces where everybody's idea matters and everybody should get a count and everybody should vote. And that's not entirely scalable. Sometimes some people need to actually work on their role and get their stuff done. And sometimes it's not the right, right time to have ideas or people can't feel upset if their ideas don't get put in place. We need to listen, but we don't always need to take everybody's idea and do it because there's a, a kind of an order of operations to scale that stuff out. But you're right. I've, I've often seen IT teams kind of wag the dog where they're the tail wagging the dog and they want to build out these cool features or integrations or some platforms that they're trying to build, but that doesn't necessarily scale revenue or customer engagement or employee engagement. And what it does do is it creates a lot of work and a lot of churn and a lot of, you know, spending of time and money that then we have to generate more revenue and gross margin to pay for it all when it really wasn't necessary in terms of the impact, right? The, the the return on those three inputs of people, time, and money, sometimes those things don't necessarily pay the dividends we're hoping them to. Agreed. And uh, sticking with the entrepreneurial side of that, all too many startups that I've seen, the tech team has created a really great solution, 
And now it's up to the CEO and the COO to go and actually find a problem that it solves. And it's definitely going the backwards process. Yeah, if, if we sat, I'll go back again to an example from 1-800-GOT-JUNK of the IT team not listening to the customer. So I, I walked in one day and our head of, IT, of engineering, who was brilliant, like spectacularly brilliant, had literally built the entire platform that built 1-800-GOT-JUNKs, our customer and our call center off of. So massively indispensable. And his work was genius. But he was building a CRM for our franchisees. Now, this was back in 2000 where CRMs were all the rage. And I said, hang on, before we start getting, and we were, we were literally doing wireframes and functional specs, trying to come up with all the requirements for the CRM. And I said, wait, first off, have you ever used a CRM? And he said, no. And I said, well, I've used them in sales and let's talk about some of my experience and what we're looking for. But second, who asked for this CRM? Like, did our franchise partners ask for it? And he said, no, I just think it's a good idea. I said, did our customers need it? He said, no, I just think it's good. Like, so no one needs it. No one's asked for it. And because it's kind of cool right now and everybody in tech is talking about it, you're trying to build something, but we're, we're managing junk removal. Like we really don't need to know much about our customers other than they used us once and we can market to them again. Like there's not really a complex sale here to be managing and there's simpler solutions in this. That was definitely the tail wagging the dog. He hadn't spoken to operations. That was one customer group. Hadn't spoken to our franchise partners. That was a customer group and really hadn't connected with the end user customer. And yet we were building something that was going to take, we were a small company. We only had 18 employees. It was going to take a lot of time of Brian and myself and him and, you know, some franchise partners to build something that no one needed. So the project was instantly killed. The hard part was letting him down in that, it wasn't a, a bad idea. It was just a, not an idea that we needed to do. So we refocused him on listening to our franchise partners and really listening to what they needed from the software. And then he built something spectacular because by understanding them and by understanding our call center, we were able to take 30% of our revenue and have it book online by 2003. Well, 2003, not many people were booking jobs on the internet at this point. They were still, and our phone number was our name. So 1-800-GOT-JUNK, they were phoning us constantly. He was able to build something that our franchise partners wanted, our customers wanted, our call center wanted, our shareholders wanted. He built something incredible, and then it took off. Yeah, the letting him down gently and, and the, the deflation that's going to come from that conversation to start with, th this is a difficult thing. And, and yes, it's definitely a COO's job to kind of focus that in uh, really nice. That, that's exactly the customer experience. He, he was creating an experience without a customer and that's much too expensive for a company. And then by getting him aligned with the real customers and understanding the real customers and thinking about the end customers, he got super inspired to build something incredible. And that literally changed the trajectory of the organization because he was connected with the right customers and was building what they actually needed and wanted. And it was cool enough that he enjoyed doing it. It was super cool. Which that's the hard part is to make them excited about what's needed because let's be honest, a lot of the systems that you need are not sexy. So, okay. Anything else you'd like to share? We've got about another four or five minutes left on the, the slot. Anything else you'd like to share on experience as a uh, COO as to how to help the end customer? Well, let's think of the COO as a customer for a second. You know, if this, who, who is the, the COO is really the customer of the CEO and the CEO is in a way the customer of the COO. So what's the job of the COO vis-a-vis -vis the CEO? Well, it's to make them look good. It's to shine the spotlight on them. 
It's to take all the crappy work off their plates that they don't love doing. It's to take all the work off their plate that drain them of energy to free them up to work in their unique ability. So if we think of the CEO as our customer, if we do those things well, they're going to be very, very happy with us. And then... One second. There's one other point that I've personally found that's relevant if the team is good. Like you said, you were best friends with the CEO. You were able to go back and brainstorm and talk with him and talk through his ideas and kind of put them into focus and quantify them so they could then be prioritized. Right. But being the sounding board, being the partner that's listening and feeding the enthusiasm while making the reality check less painful, that's the hardest part I'm personally finding. Yeah, and we also put systems in place to allow us to stay friends, right? To remember that our friendship was paramount. So we had date night, right? We spent time out of the office, away from the kids, right? Away from the other employees where we went offsite once a week and worked from the tennis club together. Or we went went for runs on Tuesday and Thursday mornings together. Or we'd go for beers once a week together. Like we just connected as friends outside of the rest of the leadership team and the rest of the employees to stay kind of grounded and, and, and like each other. And then what, what the CEO's job is to remember that their customer is the COO. They have to keep the COO happy so that the COO is engaged. And if we're taking all the crappy stuff off their plate, they have to help try to remove us from some of those pain points as well. They have to identify sometimes when we're working too much in the business and we're not delegating enough or growing our people enough. And then internally, it's nice if they shine the spotlight on us to make us look good inside of the organization as the COO, because we're often rolling out the tough decisions and the bad decisions and taking off all that grunt work. They need to make us look good as we're making them look good. It's kind of like the mom and dad need to make each other look good in front of the kids, but behind the scenes, they can they can kind of scrap it out together, but always for the good of the family and where we're taking the family. Exactly. You, you can't always play the, the bad cop uh, part of the scenario. You have to have some balance. Exactly. How do you see the difference when you're going from, you, you said like the, the one to 10, one to $50 million size companies, okay? It's a huge transition to go from that first, first getting to that first million as a COO is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Going from that first million to 10 to 20 to 50, the culture changes, your jobs change. How yeah. do you see the experience benefits or the customer experience of growing that and finding the right ways to build the team, to build the company. So I, I call it the ones and the threes. So the, tr- the the culture and the organization changes at 1 million to 3 million to 10 million to 30 million to 100 million to 300 million. So from 1 million to 3 million, you tend to have your first management team. It's no longer one person managing a bunch of people for you. You probably have a manager running each functional area, not leaders, but someone running finance, someone running marketing, somebody running ops, et cetera. When you go from 3 million to 10 million, you're starting to build out a leadership team, right? When you go from 30 to 100, or sorry, from, from 10 to 30, at the 30 million mark, you probably have your first leadership team of people that have a good enough experience, and you're starting to bring in some outside people over top of the team. As you get to the 100 million mark, politics creep in. You've got, you know, you're in the thousand plus employees, you're dealing with cross-functional decision-making, you're dealing with more feelings, you're trying to get everyone to understand what everybody's working on. So it's a lot more around collaboration and planning and communication and, and really fostering that team. 
that's the tough challenge is when that kind of creeps in. And then for me, my skill set tends to break down when we're at the 300 million mark, when we're in the, the true kind of enterprise level organization. So I'd say all bets are off on me giving you any comments there. It's a great place to and problem to have. So yes, most <laughs> companies, uh, you need a different set of tools and a different set of advisors for that, I would imagine. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for your time. Anything you'd like to add? Um, where do we find your book? And among other things, where the COO Alliance? Yeah, so my organization is called the COO Alliance. They can find that anywhere on, on the internet for sure. All six of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. And also check out the Second in Command podcast where we've had about 250 guests, but we've never interviewed the entrepreneur. We've only interviewed their COOs. So there's some great resources that they can tune into there as well. Perfect. Thank you for your time and for joining us today. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate you having me. No problem. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the CX-Verse. Please sign up to learn about future episodes. We are looking for feedback and new speakers, so please be in touch.